News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How creative are you at work? I think in a lot of ways we take this for granted these days that you can even be creative at work, but that never used to be the case. I mean, work used to be repetitive or very labor intensive physically. For many people, it still is too. But then creativity emerged as a a trait in the workforce, something that was unique and valued. And is that something that is maybe changing again because of technology and artificial intelligence? Well, Samuel Franklin is a cultural history researcher at the Delft University of Technology and the author of The Cult of Creativity, a surprisingly short history, and joins us now. Samuel, thanks for being here. Hi, Sammy. It's great to be here. When did creativity start to be important in the workplace? Well, people started talking about something called creativity in about the 1950s and 60s, and that's where the kind of discourse that we're familiar with comes from. Of course, People have been talking about things like imagination or genius or ingenuity for a long time, but I think it was a bit at the margins and it didn't coalesce into this kind of concept we have today of creativity of this personal attribute that someone might have, be able to foster, you know, that we might actually be able to find something out about scientifically until, yeah, after World War II. Right. It was a rise of kind of critical thinking in the workplace, right? Yeah. So there was this sense that... uh, in mass society that had kind of reached its peak in the 50s, you know, the big corporations, big government agencies, everything was big, big, big and bureaucratic. There was this fear that um, actually people's ingenuity and an individual and I guess like, uh, yeah, kind of excitement and work was going away. And so they started worrying that this was going to maybe slow down innovation or just cause alienation and dissatisfaction with work. So that's when it started. And it was during a time where innovation was starting to become more and more important for more and more people, technological innovation for military reasons, for consumer uh, capitalism reasons. So it became a a real source of uh, anxiety for the people who are running the whole system. How are we going to get people to, you know, come up with new stuff faster? And it it was a way we I think we also saw it as a way of protecting ourselves, right, from from having that job or from being laid off, from having your job outsourced or your job going elsewhere. It was like, no, no, I'm creative. Therefore, I'm needed. Absolutely. All the way back in the 1950s, computers were starting to move into the white collar workplace. Now, automation had been de-skilling and and wiping out blue collar jobs for for a long time already but suddenly the machines were taking over the 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 so-called brain work sector and so people were looking for okay what is that human thing that like you said I can still do that a machine can't do and for a long time creativity seemed like that thing so what's happening now though because I feel like with all these stories of artificial intelligence AI and and GPT chat all those things it's kind of taking over that space a little bit isn't it yeah, it's really kind of messing with it because for a long time we we kept saying this this mantra that creativity would protect you from from the from automation, from computers, but also like you said from from outsourcing, from de-skilling that that would be the thing whether you're a designer or or a or just or just being cr- really creative in whatever job you have that that would protect you. And now we're seeing computers do a lot of the things that we think of as creative. Now, I'm not here to say that computers are or aren't creative, but if it's just a matter of uh, coming up with a design or uh, 
you know, solving a problem in a new way, um, or coming up with some text, some copy, um, for, for content or, you know, which a lot of us are in the business of generating right. some kind of content, you know, the computers can do that pretty well now. And it's, they're already journalists. They're already, uh, you know, we're already reading some of their, their products. So yeah, it's really kind of messing not just with our jobs, which I think is kind of probably the most important thing, but also with our self-conceptions, which but, with our very ideas of what it means to be human. But we did it to ourselves. That's the part that gets me is that in our creativity, uh-huh. we did it to ourselves. Yeah, there's an irony, right? That we so invented much, yes. our way into this. Yeah. So then where do we go from here? Do we see ourselves being supplanted by this? I don't know. You know, people are talking about it in a lot of different ways. A lot of people say, okay, these are just going to be tools that we can use that uh, creative people, for example, writers or artists or whatever, can use to be even more creative, uh, to come up with stuff even faster. I I think that's a little weird because one of the reasons that we have um, valued so-called creative work for, for so long is actually because it's some of the the few areas of work um, that are, I guess you could say, not alienated, right? Where you get to pick your project more or less and pick how you're going to do it and you get to see it through and struggle with all the quite non, non-creative non aspects of it, the struggling, making mistakes, the doing things over and over again, um, trying to perfect the technique, and then you get something beautiful in the end. And I think that whole kind of process is one of the things that we love about creative work. And now we're kind of uh, being told that it's great because now anyone can make a movie. Well, <laughs> if you don't get to go through the whole process of making the movie, have you really made a movie in any meaningful sense? That's so true. So I'm not sure. So we have more work to do. We have to pivot once again, I would say. Yeah, we're going to keep having to think of uh, what we care about, what we value, what it means to be human. We sure do. Thank you so much for that discussion this morning. Yeah, I I hope it was useful. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That's Dr. Samuel Franklin, uh, who is a cultural history researcher at the Delft University of Technology and the author of The Cult of Creativity, a surprisingly short history about how creativity became necessary for jobs post-World War II. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, congratulations to the community of Duncan because it is being featured in a new collectible silver coin from the Royal Canadian Mint. And if you're asking why Duncan, I would say for a very good reason, actually. It's about the so-called Duncan incident of 1970. Never heard of it? Well, well, hold on. Patrick Belanger is the owner of Drift Studios and is the artist behind the coin and joins us now. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Now, I know you did a lot of research into the Duncan incident before you started work on this. So what did you learn? Um, well, basically, it was um, a beautiful experience, I guess, that this nurse had, right? Because it's, uh, um, doing the research, I found out that it was many uh, different people that saw the UFO or the bright light, as we mentioned it. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, it was a nice surprise for her to see that right outside the window of the, um, the hospital there. Okay, wait a minute. You're telling me that the Royal Canadian Mint has a $20 silver coin that commemorates a UFO incident? Absolutely, yes. It's actually part of a series. There's actually, this is the, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the sixth coin of a series. It's called the Unexplained Phenomena. And basically, the Mint has launched a series over uh, uh, multiple years 
of releasing coins every year that depict um, UFO incidents of some sort. Okay, can you tell me about this one? So what happened? I know that the coin depicts a nurse, but what is the story of the nurse? The story about that is basically uh, on that fateful night. It was January 1st on, in 1970 that um, nurse was working at the Duncan Hospital. And she had a, one of her patients was not feeling too well. So she decided to, um, to help her out and to go towards the window to let a little bit, bit of air come in, you know, so, so she can mm-hmm. have some fresh air. And as she opened the curtains, um, she just saw this big light outside the window flashing at her. And she was completely, you know, like in awe kind of thing. And uh, she basically started looking, and through the window and through the big light, she started noticing, you know, the typical sphere-shaped kind of oval, UFO-style, you know, that we always heard description of, with a big bubble glass on top. And she claimed that a few people were inside the bubble looking directly at her. Um, They had their face cover, but she felt their presence. Wow. And she wasn't alone, right? Other people saw this as well. There was another uh, nurse around, if I'm not uh, mistaken, that um, came to the window right after and also uh, her report said the same thing. She didn't say anything about the person inside the, the, the UFO, but she did saw the bright light as well. And other people from other parts of Duncan have also, during the same night, relayed the same sort of story. So how did you decide, like, what did you want to portray with your depiction of this? It must be quite challenging to figure out what are you going to create to represent this? Yeah. So normally what we do is we get a bit of a brief from the, the Mint as well. And through our research, this to me was the uh, the image that I could see in my head, right? Like I, I could totally see the, you know, how I would do it basically. So I, I, I thought like if we put ourselves from a perspective of being almost like the patient in the bed that she's attending to and the nurse is in front and then she's in right in front of the window. So um, I could see the whole scenario in my head and I thought, you know what, that would be something really cool to put on the coin because you got the perspective from looking at it just like the nurse would do, right? Right. And so you, they sent out a brief on this and you decided that, hey, I'm going to look into this. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And we had all kinds of UFO reports from the 70s and stuff like that, which was really interesting to read through. And what did you think of the coin when it was all finished? Because it's actually a very interesting coin. If you put it under a black light flashlight, it glows, like the UFO glows. Absolutely, yeah. So the Mint is uh, pretty advanced technologically-wise. You know, They have all these different techniques that they can use now to produce coin. And this one is one of them where, first of all, it's a square format or rectangular, right, which is a little bit unusual for the mint. And also, we are able now to print in full color, so the image that you will see on the coin is full color. And added to that is this transparent ink, just like um, the typical, you know, black light ink when you flash with your, uh, your light, certain, certain colors that we can control can now, you know, become like pop-up or, or glow in the dark kind of thing. Right. You also worked on another coin in the same series. So then I have to ask you, Patrick, are you, are you fascinated by unexplained phenomena? <laughs> um, yeah, in some ways. I do believe in it. I've never seen anything unusual myself. But, uh, yes, I do have, there's, there's a, you know, 
a big part of me that uh, totally, totally does, for sure. Right. And the other one you worked on was the Montreal incident. What was that? Absolutely. So the Montreal incident within the same series was a little bit the same thing, but it was the, uh, a UFO sighting in 1979, if I'm not mistaken. And it was uh, atop of the uh, Place Bonaventure in Montreal. So there's a beautiful uh, hotel. Um, there was a, a tourist lady coming from the state that decided to go from for a little, you know, uh, night swim kind of thing. And she was in the pool and she saw these big bright light right on top of her. And uh, there was a police officer and different people on the scene as well because they had multiple reports, a little bit the same thing. And, uh, yeah, everybody saw the light, but nobody could explain it. And I do remember, because I'm from Montreal, and I do remember that specific incident when it came out. I remember seeing that in the news and going like, oh, my God. (laughs) This is crazy. Well, these are beautiful coins. You did wonderful work. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, that means it's Friday. It also means it's time for us to talk to Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. I feel like we've talked about this story every day this week, but we need to because something changes every day, and this is the whole carbon tax story. Yeah, it was only last week that the... uh, Federal government, Justin Trudeau, executed, and I use that word with a double meaning, a massive flip-flop on carbon taxation. They had been a hold-the-line government. You know, we need carbon taxes uh, to provide the right signals for people to switch to less uh, polluting forms of energy. And they announced that they're going to exempt the dirtiest home heating fuel, oil, for three years. And they do it as a shameless boat pandering exercise with Atlantic Canada, but created an enormous problem right across the country because uh, why not give it to everyone? Why just make it home heating oil, which is the dirtiest fuel? And why target to uh, eastern provinces where you're in political trouble? Why not do everybody? And what we've seen since then, Simi, is... The worst fears of people who said it was important to hold the line on carbon tax when you offer relief from it. Exactly. And depart from your ideological position on it, you get a whole bunch of calls to do the same. This has created a huge political problem for the BC NDP government because as of this morning, uh, David Eby is the last new Democrat leader in Canada to refuse to match the federal relief on home heating oil. Uh, How bad was Justin Trudeau's flip-flop? Well, yesterday afternoon, it drove the federal NDP into the arms of the federal conservatives. I couldn't believe that when I saw it. I thought, (laughs) what? That's how bad a flip-flop it was. You know, that's why, Simi, uh, it's very hard to find a federal liberal MP in British Columbia, never mind get them to comment on this. Some of them are, I think, thinking of checking into witness protection. So, uh, but it's the problem is for David Eby, because, of course, with the federal NDP joining the Conservatives on this issue, the Conservative call for home heating oil relief all home heating fuel relief, so natural gas, which is cleaner and propane, coast to coast. The only fair way to do this is to give everybody that, and the federal NDP got it, and they've joined. I see, Simi, that the premier of Manitoba, new, new Democrat, uh, NDP leader in Saskatchewan, 
NDP leader, former Premier Rachel Notley in Alberta are all of the same voice on this. Um, well, David Eby hasn't blinked yet, but I, the political pressure on the BC NDP government on this is going to be enormous because, as I said, uh, David Eby is the last absolutist on this issue uh, NDP leader in the country. I'm curious about this because, I mean, home heating oil is not used widely here in BC. So if they wanted to jump in, they could just say, fine, we'll match it on home heating oil because it doesn't affect very many people. But I guess the problem with that is the yeah. far more people with, with natural gas heating their homes would say, hey, what about us? Yeah, I mean, you're stepping onto a slippery slope. And look, if you buy the ideological argument on carbon taxation and it's understandable, you provide signals and taxes to encourage people to go to cleaner options, Simi, it is utterly perverse to lift the tax on the dirtiest home heating fuel really and to continue to tax the cleaner alternative like natural gas. So, you know, I, I, Eby can't just do the home heating oil thing here. He's, he's, if he's going to do it, he's got to do all home heating fuel. And he doesn't want to do that because I'm sure all of his advisors are saying what advocates of carbon taxation have been saying since Trudeau did his flip-flop is this is absolutely wrong strategy. If you start offering piecemeal relief from the tax, all you do is create an appetite for more. Uh, And that's what's happened. And so Justin Trudeau started the problem, but you know, what you saw yesterday, the federal NDP, which is propping up Justin Trudeau, went, nah, we're not going with you on this one. We're voting with the Conservatives on this. And the challenge is there for David Eby. I see he has a press conference at a news conference at 745 today. I don't know if he'll be taking question, questions. I expect if he does, he'll hear a question about this. All right, we're back with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. And Vaughn, I see that the latest report from Elections BC is out about fundraising. Yes, Simeon, just before we start that, I'm looking here at the press release, the news advisory for that appearance by the Premier yep. at 7.45 a.m. today. <laughs> this is convenient timing. Uh, the Premier will be joined by Stephen Gilbeau, the Federal Minister for Carbon Taxation, the Environment Minister, who has had the unpalatable job for the last week of defending Ottawa's flip-flop on home heating oil. So I uh, want to bet that he and the Premier don't want to take questions this morning. <laughs> Just looking at that yeah. one and thinking, wow, this thing is really... Oh, you know, in the announcement yesterday, the federal NDP announcement that they're going to join the Conservatives in voting for relief from carbon taxation for home heating fuel. Mm -hmm. It was made by a BCNP, Peter Julian. Way to rub it in. So this this is fascinating. And uh, anyway, sorry to interrupt the storyline this morning, but this is really fascinating. Good points. It is fascinating because that, especially when you point that out too, you wonder why would they do that? Why would they slap their BCNDP counterparts in the face like that? Yeah. No, I I think what they're trying to do, maybe they're just trying to send them a friendly message like, hey, folks, uh, you might want to revisit your stand on this one. The public has moved elsewhere on this. 
BC and New Democrats have not had a lot of huge political problems during their time in office. They've done well. There was the big flap over the provincial museum make, makeover, and they flip-flopped on that very quickly. They backed yep. off. So, you know, maybe your federal party's trying to send you a message on this one. I, I would put that as not so much a slap in the face as a nudge in the elbows. In the, in the <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about that fundraising issue, too, because this is interesting. Yeah. So the fundraising numbers come in every quarter from Elections BC. They keep track of it. And the latest numbers show uh, the party formerly known as the BC Liberals, BC United is having a tough time raising money. Uh, BC United raised about $400,000 in the most recent three months, for which we have numbers. NDP out fundraised them better than two to one. So NDP is approaching $900,000 over the same stretch. Uh, it, it just reinforces what we've been hearing from privately from BC United insiders. The party is having a tough time raising money and it needs money, Simi, because it's in the middle of a huge rebranding exercise. They need to let the BC public know that, hey, we're BC United now, uh, you know, and that's why you don't see our name on, uh, on everywhere yet, but it's going to be everywhere by the next election. So this is a struggle. Near as I can determine, Simi, the, the BC United problem it's a, is a kind of a catch-22. They're not doing well in the opinion polls. Their own supporters are going, I'm not sure we should give you a bunch of money because, you know, you're probably going to lose the next election. So why don't we just hold back our money until the next electoral cycle? That's, yeah, you know, it's a sort of a self-reinforcing thing. Uh, but the, you know, the opinion polls are one thing. The real measure, I would say, of how a political party, there can be confusion in the opinion polls, Simi. But the real measure of how a political party is doing is can it raise money? The conservatives aren't raising all that much yet, but their curve is climbing and BC United is just not where it needs to be. Okay, so there's that. And then talking about a past um, policy of the former oh. BC United, BC Liberals, this is interesting because this is the story also that just keeps on coming around this Little Mountain social housing issue. Yeah, so Little Mountain has been sort of a vacant lot for housing for years. The previous BC Liberal government handed the lands over to a developer, Holborn. Um, on a secret deal, uh, the details weren't released. The company itself fought for years to keep the details from coming out. When they finally came out, we found out why. The developer and the BC Liberals didn't want to talk about the deal because we, the taxpayers, through the government, gave the developer a, an interest-free loan, $200 million to 2026. So there's been some excellent reporting on this one. And it all came out year before last. And David Eby was the housing minister in those days. And he was under enormous pressure, Simi, from his own party to launch a full-blown investigation of this thing, go, go to court and stop the deal, get the land back. He chose not to. He said, we need the housing. He made his own deal. It was public with the developer to get the housing to go ahead. And EB thought he had a deal to let it go to head. So what happened? 
the Vancouver City Council this week. Holborn goes to council and seeks another sweetheart deal. They don't want to have to build the social housing first. They want to get on with building the market housing first. Simi, the appropriate answer from Vancouver City Council, the mayor and his party would have been, how dare you? Exactly. Yes. How, how dare, dare you? you? Come <laughs> again to this? record? You know, why don't you start by giving us back our $200 million that you got interest-free? Like, seriously, but that's not what happened, Simi. That's not what happened. No, no, no. The council said, yeah, okay, sure, you're great people. We'll give you another sweetheart deal. And they did. I, you know, (laughs) it is no wonder some days that people get mad at private developers and the kind of deals they do. But in this case, their handmaiden was the... BC Liberals a decade and a half ago, and now the ABC Council has compromised itself by giving the developer another sweetheart deal. It really is. And it's so frustrating to drive by there just and if you live in that neighborhood, too, that you just see it just sitting there empty all these years. Prime land in the midst of two now, two cycles of housing that have gone crazy, right, in 2016 and in the last few years. And still nothing happens. How is that possible? No, no, it's incredible. Well, and, and, and you know, it's now well documented, right? I mean, there's been some excellent reporting by my co- uh, post-media colleagues, Dan Fumano, Laurie Culbert, uh, NDP, backbencher David Chudnovsky fought to get this material made public. And, you know, I'll give the premier credit. Uh, when he was housing minister, David Eby said, I, I don't like the deal. Yes, I could reap political capital by holding it up and, and parading it all through a public inquiry, but we need the housing. So I'm going to swallow my indignation and make a deal with this developer. And he did. And it's still not happening. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's absolutely infuriating. Um, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Yeah, there are lots of questions for Ken Sim and his ABC Majority Council about why they would do something like this when this developer has proven time and time again that they keep getting these sweetheart deals and then they don't do anything with this little mountain land. Like, it's crazy. This is Mornings with Simi. There are limits. That is pretty much the message from the provincial government this week when it comes to safe supply. The BC Coroner Service released a report from its Toxic Drug Death Review Panel, and that panel's primary recommendation was a non-prescription approach to a safer drug supply. That means more drugs available to anyone who wants or needs them, but without the toxicity that is causing so many overdoses. The question is, though, how do you balance safe access with all of the other concerns? Now, the BC NDP government led the way three years ago by fighting for a prescribed safe supply, but it seems that they are drawing the line there. And joining us now to talk about why is Jennifer Whiteside, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. So why draw the line here and say no more? Well, you know, Simi, we we have a very, very serious crisis in our province. We lost over 2,300 British Columbians last year to toxic drug poisoning. Uh, So far this year, uh, the the numbers look like they're on track to be another devastating year. Overall, in excess of 13,000 British Columbians since this uh, was declared a public health uh, emergency in 2016. And the nature of the of the toxic drug crisis has really changed through COVID. The drugs have become much more poisoned. 
we see much higher, uh, much more, uh, much higher percentage poisoned with drugs like fentanyl. So 85% of the drug supply, the illicit drug supply in British Columbia is poisoned with fentanyl, which is a very, very uh, highly potent and highly addictive uh, drug. And this is creating real challenges for our healthcare system, for law enforcement, for everyone who is trying so hard uh, to grapple with this and to support people who are struggling with, with addiction and who are caught up in this. And so we're working really hard, as you said in your intro, on the work that we started a few years ago at the outset of COVID to try to connect, to try to separate people as much as we can from the illicit drug supply and connect them to, uh, to a safe supply. But we think it's really important that that's done with medical oversight uh, and that we don't lose the opportunities to make sure that we're connecting people to care and support and that we're sort of using uh, the, you know, the opportunity to connect people to a, to a, um, to a, 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 a pharmaceutical grade and sort of med- medical treatment um, to, you know, other forms of uh, treatment down the road. So do you think then what the toxic drug panels review said that, there, that maybe it lacked balance, that there wasn't enough of both of those things in there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to say that, you know, I think that, that you know, we, the, the, the coroner's uh, death panel reviews have been very, very helpful in, uh, in, in previous, uh, previous rounds and uh, really advocating for scaling up um, medication uh, alternatives and, you know, medicated assisted, assisted therapies, things like, you know, connecting people to Suboxone and Methadone, you know, treatments that we know really can help stabilize people and help move them down the, down the road on, a, on their recovery journey. Um, and really, safer supply is very much, can be really at the front end of that, but it's still very early days. Uh, we're still gathering the evidence. Uh, Dr. Henry is reviewing the program that was put into place in the early days of COVID so that we make sure that it is, you know, can be, uh, you know, provided appropriately and safely for the, t- for the time that we're in now. And we'll hear from, from Dr. Henry more about that in the coming, uh, in, in the coming months. Um, but I do think it's important that, you know, I mean, you talk about balance. It's, it's, it's not, in my view, quite so much a question of balance as it is about ensuring that we are working across the entire continuum of care. We have to have harm reduction um, supports and services for people because we have to do everything we can to keep people alive while we are connecting them to all of the, 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 the treatment and support options that are being built out by, um, by our health authorities. We're working so hard to, um, to build access so that we can connect British Columbians to the care that they need, whether that's bed-based treatment or outpatient treatment or virtual care. Um, and uh, that, you know, keeping people alive is a really important part of that. But we have to retain a connection to health care and a connection to medical oversight as we're doing that. So you're saying there's not enough of that right now then to justify increasing the safe supply out there. So how do we get more treatment? Yeah, well, I mean, we are, I mean, we're working to, in, to increase some um, prescriber, uh, prescribed safer supply. We're working to, um, to provide, based on what we've heard from physicians, we've heard that what, what from physicians that what, what they know their patients need are different kinds of medications to be available. So we're working to, 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 to scale up and make sure that we have different kinds of medications that are more appropriate for, for what, what the needs of people are. We, in fact, just, uh, the College of Nurses just approved a certified practice um, uh, process for uh, nurses to be able to um, to be able to uh, diagnose and then treat uh, uh, opioid use disorder, and that is a really significant step. That means that um, this sort of this trial that we did uh, that we've been doing over the past few years, uh, again in the sort of in the context of COVID, to have um, nurses as a front line for this particular area of um, of, of healthcare. 
uh, we're really going to be able to scale that up. We know that nurses are very interested in doing this work. They are doing remarkable work, I can tell you, out there um, in communities, connecting people to care, scaling up um, programs, providing access to overdose prevention sites, working to connect people to things like methadone and suboxone, those important stabilizing medications for people. So having more nurses uh, on the front lines will, will is absolutely going to help. Uh, connect more people to that kind of care. We have to do that at the same time as we are uh, building out bed-based treatment and working up for programs like, for example, what is happening in Vancouver Coastal right now. Uh, if somebody in Vancouver Coastal needs needs assistance with an addiction issue, they can call the Access Central line. They can get a same-day clinical assessment, kind of initial clinical assessment from a from a physician who is working with the intake team, and um, and they could, they can map out what the next step for that person is, and that next step might be, hey, if we get you on um, on a on a on a on a medication to help um, kind of stabilize you before you get to detox, we might actually be able to lessen the time that you spend in detox. Right. If you need to get to detox right away, we're gonna we're gonna try to get you there. There, are, of course, some years still gaps in the system, but we're mm-hmm. working, uh, you know, very very hard to fill those gaps. Now, your statement the other day clearly caught the coroner's service review panel off guard. Right? Was there any communication about their findings and your thoughts on it ahead of time before the press conference? Uh, no, not 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 much. I mean, I, I mean, I, I had very little notice that. Um, uh, I mean, of course, I, I knew that the coroner had had put another uh, put put another panel in um, in place. Um, I have frankly have been very focused on the work though um, that we're uh, th- that that we're doing around scaling up our system, but also um, and, and you know been uh, been been anticipating um, Dr. Henry's report on the on the safer supply program. So wasn't uh, wasn't um, quite quite expecting um, uh, this uh, this. Uh, Really, one recommendation. I mean, the one recommendation really from the corner is that we um, kind of, you know, sh- shift focus from what we have been doing and uh, just shift, uh, m- move to um, try to scale up another kind of system, which uh, I-, I mean, frankly, just is, is, is riddled with um, riddled with all kinds of challenges and and regular barriers. Do you think that British Columbians have kind of reached their limit when it comes to safe supply? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, I think that what we I think that what British Columbians understand and I think what they're really committed to is doing everything that we can to keep people alive during a terrible, terrible um, scourge of a of a of a crisis, uh, a, a terrible uh, um, d- disease in, uh, in in terms of the, the addiction that people are dealing with. And then that, you know, the fact that once, you know, these drugs are so highly addictive when people become um, 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 connected to and addicted on something like fentanyl, what they're really after is trying to stop the illness that is created by not having the drug in their system anymore. Um, and it is, uh, it's really an effort to try to stay um, feeling um, uh, not horrible is, is what's the way it's been described, it, described to me. It, it's a very, very terrible, it's a very terrible, um, it's such a terrible uh, situation for people to be in. And I know that, you know, the physicians I've spoken to, the people I've, I've spoken to, I mean, nobody who's addicted to fentanyl wants to be there. That is for sure. And so we have to do everything we can to try and support people to, to, to move off of that. Well, Minister Whiteside, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So we just heard from the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions on where the provincial government is essentially prepared to draw the line when it comes to safe supply of drugs here in BC. That is not what some public health professionals and researchers want to hear, actually. The latest report is called An Urgent Response to a Continuing Crisis. It was put together by about 21 experts. The central recommendation, as we've been hearing, 
is to reduce dependence on the unregulated toxic drug supply by providing more access to safer drugs for people at risk. And yet, as we just heard from the minister, that's not going to happen. So what now? Well, Michael Eggleson is the chair of the BC Coroner's Service Death Review Panel and joins us now to talk about that work. Michael, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Michael, what did you think about what Minister Whiteside had to say? Well, I... I, I think the first thing that, that um, I, I want to say is I think it's really important that when we look at this crisis, there's a couple of things we keep in mind. There's a real urgency here. Over 13,000 people have died since, since, since 2016. Um, that's just an unimaginable number. I think the second thing to really keep in mind here is this isn't an either or problem. It's an and problem. There's a lot of things we need to do. And what we're suggesting here is that we need to uh, increase alternatives uh, to the unregulated drug supply. There's, there's absolute confirmation from everybody that we need a robust evidence-based system of care from health promotion through to treatment, but there's a recognition that that's going to take time um, and that non-prescribed alternatives to unregulated uh, drug supply need to be part of that whole solution. I mean, what we know is you know, over over that time from 2016, uh, the number of deaths has continued to increase. The, the key point here, I think, is that the unregulated drug supply is the primary driver of the increased number of deaths. And until we separate um, people from that unregulated toxic drug supply, um, deaths will continue. But, uh, the exi- hmm? but I was going to say, the minister said, yes, but you need to get them treatment too. You can't just hand out more safe uh, supply. Uh, that's why I say this, this, this is an end. Absolutely, um, that's needed. But what, what the um, chief coroner um, task, and this is the third panel on this issue of, of um, uh, toxic drug deaths, is what can we do and roll out quickly um, that will have a sense of urgency uh, to reduce the number of lives lost. Absolutely, we need an evidence-based, robust um, system of treatment. That's going to take time, and time that, that in a sense of urgency, uh, we no longer have. That absolutely needs to be done. It needs to be um, um, developed, enhanced, implemented. But again, that's going to take time. The, the, the task that the panel um, was um, set uh, was to look at of the recommendations that had formerly been um, made by these panels and, and certainly that evidence-based system of care was one of them. Um, what can we do um, more quickly to reduce this, this absolutely uh, unbelievable number of, of, of deaths? And that's where um, uh, this recommendation comes from, um, recognizing that until we separate um, provide alternatives to people uh, from that toxic drug supply. Um, we're going to continue with with um, a great number of deaths. Okay, but it doesn't sound like that's going to happen then. So, like a lot of work was done. How, how do you feel about that? Is the government saying, "Yeah, I get that you're recommending this, but it's not going to happen"? Well, I think I, I, I come back to what the panel was tasked with, and what the panel did was provide uh, the best advice. Um, that they could um, to the um, chief coroner. Um, that's what they were asked to do. Um, that's what they've done. Um, I think that that in in how that recommendation, those recommendations were laid out, 
Um, there's a recognition that, that certainly the public has some concerns around safer supply, and, and those are legitimate concerns. And those, are, I think, are, are addressed in the report about how those can be um, responsibly uh, and, and reasonably addressed to both protect uh, public health and public safety. Can it, though? Does it feel like the public perhaps is, is resistant on this issue as well? Well, I, th- I think, and, and, and again, it's, it's, it's important not to pit um, people against each other. I, I think that, um, you know, people have um, some, some legitimate concerns about, um, you know, what, what are some potential harms that, that could come out of this. And so by putting in, um, and if, you know, if you read the, the, the actual recommendation, uh, the checks and balances, um, the rigorous oversight, um, really, I think, is able to address and, and uh, mitigate, you know, any potential um, unforeseen harms. What we do know today, and I think this is really important, is that the, the work that the coroner service done is, is really uh, evidence-based, not based on antidote. And, and with the prescribed safer supply that's out there um, to date, um, we know of, of, of the drugs um, that, that are involved um, since 2017, four deaths can be attributed to those drugs, and, and those were prior to mm-hmm. um, prescribed safer supply um, being um, available. Right. So what we, we are able to, to do, I think, is, is show that um, this can be done um, responsibly um, and, and, and appropriately. Well, Michael, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Well, thanks for your interest. This is, 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 is really important. It's mm-hmm. urgent, and, and we really need to uh, do something to reduce these numbers. We certainly do. Your- yeah. Michael Eggleston is the chair of the BC Coroner Service Death Review Panel. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I expect to hear that everywhere all over the city on Sunday because that is when the Vancouver Whitecaps are playing their home playoff game. It's their second game against LAFC and they need to win this one. And this is big, big for the Vancouver Whitecaps because of how many people are going to be there too. Coach Vanny Sartini is with us now to talk more about that. Good morning. Morning, Sue. How are you? I'm good. Are you excited? Yes, I'm very excited. Really looking forward to Sunday afternoon is going to be a very important game. And as you said, like, uh, you know, the response of the fans has been fantastic. So it's, uh, it's going to be uh, a memorable day for sure. Yeah, this is a big sports weekend, I would say, for Vancouver, uh, coach. Yeah. And the Whitecaps are very much on people's minds. I mean, are you not, you opened up the upper bowl here for this game. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, again, as I said, the, the response of the fans was fantastic. So, Basically, the the lower bowl went sold out uh, uh, pretty quick, and uh, you know the, the club decided to to open part of the upper bowl, and uh, it's our actually the first time that uh, that uh, we do it in our uh, MLS uh, era, and so you know it's uh, it's it's a big deal. So it's nice, it's exciting, but also. It's more responsibility. <laughs> it is because this is an absolute must-win game. How was the team feeling? I think uh, we're feeling good. We're feeling good. We we lost game one in LA for I would say a couple of a couple of mistakes, but actually the the uh, we played a good game. We we showed that we can be uh, at the same level of them. We have to don't have to forget that they are like the the reigning champion. They won the MLS Cup last year. 
So we, I think we were confident that we get a chance to to win uh, to win Sunday again, and the help of the fans will be will be critical. So yeah, hopefully it's going to be. A fantastic day, and we're going to celebrate at the end. Yeah, I hope so too. You want fans to be really, really loud then on Sunday. Uh, most importantly, Coach, what type of pizza are you going to be eating? Uh, yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think uh, when I when I'm home, when when we play home, I don't eat the pizza at lunch. Lunch is always like. Uh, uh, most of the time at home, so it's more a pasta day. Always it does. Oh, pasta! It's more, it's, it, it, it's more of a pasta day. So I would say I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably gonna lean for a very good spaghetti with fresh tomato sauce. So that's that's gonna be. All right, I'll go with that. You know what? And just for you, I will also do that. So I am yeah. supporting oh, the team. I will good. go out of my way to eat pasta, which yeah, is really, yeah, yeah. it's not that hard. It's not that you hard. Need, yeah, well, you, know, you need to carb load before the game. You need to carb load. Yeah, you know, that's, you need to yeah. load. I will carb load with you. Uh, listen, coach, good luck. All right. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much.